Well, as many of you know, last Sunday we had a medical emergency here in this service. And I want to let you know that uh, John, the man who uh, had the heart attack over here, is doing well. He uh, wants to thank God first. Yeah, you can clap for that. Uh, John is first and foremost grateful to God for his mercy, as well as to all of you for the way that you prayed for him, supported him. Uh, as the emergency was taking place, I, he said I could share with you he's having a heart cath tomorrow, so you can be in prayer for him as he undergoes that procedure. Uh, I'm also proud of you as a church for the way that you followed directions. You made it very easy for us to do the things that had to happen. So I appreciate uh, all who were involved, the medical professionals who were part of uh, helping him, those of you who were in prayer, those of you who helped in the parking lot with everything that happened. Uh, it was a testimony to not only those who were here, but also to first responders as they were able to see you as a church remain calm and uh, be a part of the process. So thank you. I'm just a little bit loud up here, Jeff. I'm getting some feedback. Um, if you missed the second part of the sermon last week, I want to remind you that it's on our website at waysidechapel.org, so you can hear that if you need to uh, catch up with the series, whether you missed the last part of the message or are just joining us for the first time today. What we're going to be doing today is continuing our series where we're looking at the seven letters to the Church of Revelation. Uh, in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ wrote through the Apostle John uh, letters to seven churches who were located in seven cities that were in a geographic circle over in modern-day Turkey. And today we come to the church of Thyatira. Thyatira is the longest of the seven letters, and ironically, it's the smallest of the seven cities. Now, we're going to only cover part of this letter today because uh, next week I want to come back and look at what is mentioned at the end of this letter about the millennial kingdom. John gives us a peek into some of the end times, so we're going to be talking about the millennial kingdom and other events related to the end times next week. But I want you to look with me at Revelation chapter 2 as we begin reading in verse 18 through 23 as to what is said to this church at Thyatira. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast, upon her, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her and into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds." Now, I shared with you that Thyatira was the smallest of the seven cities. Uh, if you were looking at a map of that day, you notice it's on the road between Sardis and Pergamum. A uh, city we talked about last week was Pergamum. Uh, it was a major city as well as Sardis was as well. So this, this would look like a little speed trap on a modern-day map, but it was actually uh, designed to be a speed bump. 
because Thyatira was placed not high up on a hill like most cities were so that there were some natural defenses and fortification. Thyatira was what was called a sentinel city. It was like a frontier fort. And it was placed directly on the main highway down in a valley between Sardis and Pergamum. Pergamum, as we saw last week, used to be the capital of a previous empire. And it was designed to be kind of like the Asian Alamo. Uh, you know, the Alamo here in San Antonio was used uh, to slow down an advancing army to give the rest of the army an opportunity to pull together and, and mount a defense. And Pergamum was the strategic city that was to be protected. And when an advancing army came up the highway, they had to take out Thyatira in order to get through to Pergamum. And so it was designed simply to slow down this army, to give the people there 35 miles up the road time to get inside the city, gather supplies, and mount the defense for when the attacking army arrived. And Thyatira fulfilled this role twice in its history, being totally wiped out, but then rebuilt. As this letter is written around 90 AD, uh, you'll remember that Rome is in power. Pergamum has become the eastern capital of the Roman Empire. The Pax Ramona, the Peace of Rome, is in place over the area. And so Thyatira was no longer needed as a fort, but being strategically located right on the main highway, it became a commercial center. It was more than just a rest stop between these two other cities. It became a place of production. There were guilds and unions there. There were textiles and pottery that were produced. Uh, Pergamo was also known for the precious metals that were uh, manufactured there as well as for the purple production. Now, Thyatira is only mentioned uh, twice in the Bible, uh, here in this letter and once in the book of Acts that I'll mention in a moment. And it's both related. The, the other mention is in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. There it says, And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So Thyatira is mentioned in terms of this purple production. Purple dye was the color of royalty. Uh, it was so expensive that a pound of it would cost a thousand days worth of wages for a person. So only kings could afford it. And it was so rare because the source of purple dye came from two places. One is the murex shell that you see on the left side of the screen. And you could get one drop uh, of purple dye from this uh, sea creature. The other is the matter root that is located on the right side. And this was a, a rare root that's kind of like hunting truffles today. And it was located around the area of Thyatira. And so they would manufacture this purple dye. And as you saw there in the book of Acts, that's what they were known for. Uh, now, Lydia was a businesswoman. She was there from Thyatira. She went out uh, exporting some of the goods from Thyatira, and she encountered the Apostle Paul. And she heard the gospel, and she ended up importing the gospel back into Thyatira. Scholars tell us that they believe Lydia was the founder of the church there in Thyatira. So I share that with you because we see where here's a businesswoman who was out on a trip and she turned it into a missions opportunity where not only did she come to faith in Christ, but as she returned home, she imported the gospel back to her city and she established uh, a very significant work in the city that became a church and still has had impact as we're reading about it in our day. As you think about your own life, I wonder how many of you before you get on a plane, whether you're traveling for pleasure or on a business trip, I know that flying today is not fun for any of us, especially me if you don't fit in the economy seats very well. 
but before I get on a plane, what I do is I, I pray. I say, God, will you put the right person next to me? Not a, a tiny little person so I can have some elbow room. But I say, God, will you put the person next to me uh, who may be open to hearing the gospel? And as you get on a plane and you strap in, you know you have a captive audience. And uh, now I try to be very respectful. It's funny when you tell somebody, when they say, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm a pastor. The wall goes up for some. But others go, oh, that's it. Well, I'm, I'm religious too. And you get into these discussions. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it leads into a relationship with Christ. It's not about rules and ritual. It's about a relationship. And you, you would be amazed at how many people are open to hearing the gospel of Christ. And so I encourage you, before you get on a plane or before you travel somewhere, or the next time you find yourself in a waiting room, rather than scrolling through your phones or reading, you know, magazines that are five years old in the doctor's waiting room, uh, pray about an opportunity to, to share the gospel. Here was a woman who, on a business trip, ended up uh, importing the gospel back to Thyatira. Now, as we look at what is said here about the church in Thyatira, you'll remember that whenever Christ uh, writes these letters, he begins by sharing an attribute of himself, something that speaks to who he is, his, his uh, place in heaven, his personhood as, as God. And here he identifies himself in a way that the people of Thyatira would understand. The, the chief deity of the city of Thyatira was Apollo, the sun god. And you'll notice that he described himself in this letter not as the sun god, but rather as the son of God. And so what he's doing is letting them know that the one to be worshiped is not this pagan deity, but it is Jesus Christ himself, the son of God. Jesus goes on to describe himself. He says, he is one who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. If you look earlier in chapter one of the book of Revelation, you see similar descriptions as Revelation 1, 14 through 15 tells us, and his head and his hair were, white, were, were like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, which has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. When you read descriptions like these in the Bible, I, I want to remind you that John has been given a glimpse into heaven in the book of Revelation, and he's, he's grasping for words at times to describe what he sees. Imagine the glory of heaven if you were given a glimpse in and, and you're struggling to find ways to describe uh, what you're seeing. As we, if you read through Revelation and you see the end times and the plagues and things that are happening, you know, you'll see descriptions like these things that looked like locusts that had fiery tails and were stinging and different things. It's speculation on my part, but that, that could be like an Apache attack helicopter. I mean, think of John being in the first century, never knowing, never having seen one of these. And he sees this thing that's able to do this and missiles come shooting out and fire is there and things, you know. So John is, is struggling to figure out what he's seeing. And as he glimpses God in all his glory, as Jesus helps him uh, describe what he's seeing, he, he struggles for words here. And he says, you know, Jesus is, has eyes like a flame of fire. Now, some people read that and think that this describes an angry God whose who's just judgment is waiting to fall upon people. And certainly judgment is described in this letter. But I think it, it also describes in a better way the purity and penetrating judgment of God. 
how, how Christ can see through the, the fog and the chaff and, and get to the heart of the matter when it comes to us and our sin. Uh, remember last week we talked about Jesus having the two-edged sword that came from his mouth, and this had showed he had authority over life and death, but it was also pictured in Hebrews uh, 4.12 where it says that it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When we're told that Jesus has feet that are like burnished bronze, uh, there's an extremely rare Greek word that is used here. It's a cow kalibano, and it's only found in two places, here in Revelation 2.18 and what we just read in Revelation 1.15, where it describes the feet of Christ. And again, you think of John trying to picture what he sees. Many of us are not really that proud of our feet. You know, we hide them in shoes. We don't want people to see them. We wouldn't think of that as being something worthy of mention. And yet John focuses not just on the eyes of God, but on the feet. And he describes it as this, having this appearance of burnished bronze. Now, those in Thyatira knew exactly what he was talking about when he said Calcalibano, because this was a trade name for the bronze that was produced there in Thyatira. Archaeologists have uncovered things describing this, and it was a trademark name that described a mixed metal of great brilliance. It was a type of bronze which had strength, but it had silver and gold uh, mixed in as well that, that not only made it precious, but it gave it this, this just reflective quality. And so as you think of the feet of Christ, uh, these are described in, in Revelation 5 as being, in Revelation 5.13, it says that every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow down before the feet of Christ. They will worship and acknowledge that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So John is trying to communicate not only the strength, but also the preciousness, the worth of the feet of even Christ as he writes this letter. Now, he says in verse 19, after establishing his divinity, Jesus says, I know your deeds, your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds are greater than at first. If Christ were to say this to you today, if you were to have a personal conversation with him, if you were to receive a, a letter addressed to you and it said, I know your deeds, what comes to your mind? Do you cringe? and go, oh no, does he really know what I did last night? Does he really know about what happened last week? Does he really know about the way I treated this person or did that deal? Do we fear that if Christ were to say to us, I know your deeds, that they would be words of commendation uh, or would they be condemning words? As we look at what he says to the people here in Thyatira, they're not words of correction. They're words of praise. As he says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. All of us as believers long to walk through the gate of heaven and hear the words in Matthew where he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And as Jesus writes to these uh, here in Thyatira, he says, I see your deeds. I see your love. And when he talks about their love, it's not kind of that flippant way where we say, hey, I love pizza. What he says is, I see your agape. 
It's a Greek word. Agape means in all giving, self-sacrificing love. This is a word that you find in John 3.16 as well as all throughout the Bible to describe God's love for us. When he says, for God so loved, for God so agape the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And as Jesus says to them, I see your love. He says to them, I see this all-giving, self-sacrificing love. It describes the love we have received when we received Jesus Christ as our Savior, as God gave him to us to be the one who paid the penalty of death for our sins. That is the love of Christ, that he died for us. And he says, as those who have received his great love, we are then to demonstrate that love to others. And it shows up in our service. It shows up in the way that we live our life. Uh, As Amy Carmichael, the great missionary to Ireland, once said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. This love shows up in the way we demonstrate our faith and service to others. It's what Jesus tells us in uh, James uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, as God directed James to write, he says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace. Be warm and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? What use is that? It's no good. St. Augustine was once defining love. And he said, what does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see the misery and want. It has ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. As I think about our church, as I think about God writing this letter to us, you'll recall that as we've been walking through this series, I said to look at each of these letters and then to look at our church and say, what would God say to us? Would he say these same things to us in the good side? And would he have words where he said, these are things you need to give attention to? And you'll recall that each of us individually makes up the body of Christ, the church. And so what God says to the church at Wayside is really what he's talking to us. And if God were to say to you this morning, I see your love, I see your service, how would that be demonstrated? Well, as I think of our church, I think of ways where God would say, I see your love and service. One of those is through a partnership we have here with SAM Ministries. It stands for San Antonio Metro Ministries. And this is an organization here in our city that takes families struggling with homelessness and it transitions them to a permanent home and it helps them get back on their feet. And we support it not only through our missions budget, but we also support it in the way that many of you serve. Some go there to Sam and you serve meals and you're involved in uh, working with the kids that are there that need tutoring and, and other ways reaching into this ministry here in San Antonio. There's a new partnership that we're uh, working with now called Snack Pack for Kids. And Snack Pack for Kids is designed to be a bridge for families during the time where they have no meals. Uh, They serve families that are termed food insecure. And that's a a big term that simply means this. A family doesn't necessarily know where the next meal is coming from. And especially in relation to the kids. There are 150,000 kids here in San Antonio that are food insecure. These are individuals who, when they're not in school and receiving the, the breakfast or the school lunches or some of the summer programs that are in place, when they are not getting those meals during the week, when the weekend comes in their home and over the summer breaks or other breaks, uh, some of these kids are going without food 
because the families are unable to put meals on the table. And so what Snack Pack for Kids does is provides a bridge for that gap. It is a a package that is sent home with the kids that has meals to bridge that gap. Uh, When we do our church picnic in a few weeks, we're going to ask you to bring an 18-ounce jar of peanut butter. This is one of the things we put in this package. And it has a variety of foods and things to, to be this transitional gap for these kids so they can focus on learning instead of uh, that, that longing in their stomach where they're saying, I'm hungry and I don't know where the next meal is coming from. And this is part of uh, our partnership program with Colonial Hills Elementary. Many of you know uh, we serve a, a local elementary school here, Colonial Hills, through a number of things that we do there. We are in the school as mentors and tutors. Uh, I'm not sure if that was good English, but we tutor kids and we mentor them. Uh, in the, don't write me any letters, English teachers. Uh, so we, we're in the school mentoring. We uh, serve those kids in other ways. We had our men build boxes on the property the other day for the outdoor lab. Uh, we serve the teachers through appreciation gifts and other encouragements. We're uh, involved not just in that school uh, during the day. We're there in the, in the afternoon. We have an after-school Bible club where we've seen over 100 of these kids come to Christ in the last six years. There through our after-school Bible club. We scholarship them through camp things that we do here on our property like Pine Cove Camp in the City or our partnership with His Hill Christian Camp. And so these are ways that we're involved with these kids, and we want to add one more layer to the partnership through the Snack Pack for Kids and helping with some of these physical needs. You've already been very generous when we do uh, coat drives in the winter or can drives uh, for the holidays. You've been a, a part of the outreaches we've done into the apartments there that feed into this school where we serve not just the kids but the families, and we've been able to establish Bible studies in those apartment complexes. So this is a holistic ministry. We're not just focused on a physical need. We're using these as opportunities to meet, as James says, meet that physical need. But then we bridge it to the greatest need they have, which is to know about Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. We are also going to have this go-serve opportunity on October 3rd. Uh, I could spend five minutes describing all the various opportunities that will be in place there. Uh, But instead, I'm going to encourage you to go to our website and just look and see the opportunities that you have to serve. But we're going to start at 8.30 in the morning feeding you some breakfast tacos. We'll divide in the teams. Some will be uh, physical labor things. Others will be prayer walking. Others will be um, lower need physical things. Uh, We'll be serving some of the uh, widows and single moms in our church through doing some handyman stuff around some homes and things that they have need for. So here's a wonderful opportunity for you to put uh, feet to your faith. If you've not been involved in some of these other opportunities, you can, you can do these things. Now, as a church, we're not just reaching out into the community, but we also reach into the community within the four walls of our church because there are needs right here among those of you who are sitting here this morning. There are physical needs, there are financial needs uh, of people in our pews, and through your generosity giving to the agape ministry, that Greek word for love that we have here in our church, we're able to uh, meet some of these needs. Let me share with you a card that I received from one family. It said, Pastor, we cannot begin to express the gratitude that we have in our hearts for the Christian love that has been shown to, the, to our family over the last 10 months. From the moment we first walked through the church doors, we've always felt like and were treated like we were a part of this congregation. 
When we had a crisis, prayers were lifted up on our behalf, and people helped in many ways, wonderful ways, with calls of concern, lots of food that was brought to our home. We've never been to a church that has taken such a personal interest in our family, and we would like to say thank you. The Lord truly blessed our lives when he led us to Wayside. Now, I could spend the rest of our time sharing other notes like this, just as many of you could share your own personal stories of ways that you have helped others or ways that you have been helped. But rather than simply celebrating these things, which are wonderful and should be celebrated, I want to ask us a question again. I want to ask us um, to think again individually about what we're doing because it's easy in a church our size to miss people. There are people sometimes who walk on our property that are not made to feel as welcome as they should be. There are people who are here that maybe are struggling in their, their homes and their marriages and their, their jobs and school and other ways, and, and they're afraid to share because they're not sure if this is a safe place. Will people reject them or will they be enfolded with the love of Christ? And what God calls on us to do individually and as a church is to be aware of those who are around us and to reach out with his love. If God were to say to you, I know of your love, does that really describe you? As you think of your, your life, can you think of the last time that you went beyond a high, how are you doing to somebody and actually said, no, I really want to know how you're doing. Let's sit down and talk. In fact, hey, why don't we go grab a cup of coffee or why don't we go uh, out for lunch or something so that we can have a little extended time? Have you really gone beyond the surface with somebody recently to show the love of Christ? I want you to think back to when you were new to Wayside and what it felt like when you walked into the, this place for the first time and how scary it seemed. Uh, and to remember that feeling and to say, I know there are others here today that are just like that, and I want to make them feel uh, that this is their home, that they're welcome here. As we look at the letter to Thyatira, Jesus says, your deeds of late are greater than at first. And what he's saying to us is we can't rest on the past. We can't look at all the great partnerships we have in missions, both across the ocean globally as well as locally. We can't look at the way that we were kind to somebody, you know, a year and a half ago and forget that there's a new need today. Are our deeds of late today, recently, greater than before? Now, as we look at what Jesus is saying to them, uh, he's commending them for their love. He's commending them for their service. But I want you to look at verse 20. Because in verse 20, he warns them about something. He says, while things are going well in these areas, he says, there's a big problem. And the problem in verse 20 is that they are tolerating evil. You know, the big thing in, in our society today is tolerance, isn't it? We live in a world that says the highest and greatest good we can do is to show love and acceptance to somebody just as they are, not to rock the boat, not to confront somebody, not to say, hey, what you're doing isn't right because they're not going to feel good. And as we look at this, what Jesus says to them is, he says, you've got great love and service. He says, but you're failing when it comes to confronting sin and evil. You know, it's interesting, if you read the letter to the Ephesians, uh, the church at Ephesus, if you remember, Jesus commended them for their, their doctrine. He said, you guys are pure, you're teaching truth. But what did he say they were lacking in? Their love, their service. 
And now we get to Thyatira and he says, hey, you guys are hitting it out of the park in love and service. But he says, you've got a problem in your doctrine. You've got a problem in standing for truth. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. Jesus says to them in verse 20, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Jezebel was a wicked woman in the Old Testament. She was the daughter of the king of Sidon. And she married King uh, Ahab, who was over the northern kingdom of Israel. They formed this political alliance. And when she moved into the palace, she brought all of her pagan gods with her, Baal and, and the other ones. But Baal was the chief god that she brought in. And she wasn't content just to get the people of Israel to compromise and worship this pagan god. She wanted to completely wipe out the worship of Jehovah of Yahweh, the true God. And so she set about doing this by killing off the the prophets of God. She uh, had 800 pagan priests of Baal on the payroll. You'll remember that things were so bad that even the great prophet Elijah feared for his life. But ultimately, it was Jezebel who lost her life as God raised up and and put her down and she she was killed off. Now, when we read about the Jezebel and Thyatira, it's like calling somebody a Judas today. It's not that somebody was uh, the one who denied Jesus Christ as Judas did, but Jezebel was this wicked woman. So when he says there's a Jezebel in Thyatira, it's a title used to describe somebody who's trying to move the people to compromise. You'll recall in previous letters we already saw where he talked about uh, Balaam, the false prophet who tried to get the people to compromise. We looked at the Nicolaitans who were being drawn into the pagan worship of the day, and now he adds Jezebel to this group. And the names are different in our day, but the temptations are the same. Because we live in a day where people say, live and let live. Just the temptation is to tolerate evil. I don't know if you noticed this, but last time he said, I have this against you. Some of you have been participating in evil. But now he says, some of you are tolerating evil. It's not that they were actively involved. They were simply bystanders who were doing nothing about it. During the civil rights struggle, Dr. Martin Luther King once said this, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who perpetuates it. He who accepts evil without actively protesting against it is really cooperating with it. When we fail to stand for truth, what we do is we run the risk of letting uh, the lies of the world overtake truth. And we see that in our society as more and more ground is being given up uh, to the lie that we are to live and let live, that we're just to tolerate everybody and accept everybody as they are. You know, what's interesting to me, I don't know if you've seen this, but I, I see it all the time. The only thing that is not tolerated in our society today is what? Christianity. Christianity. Actually, I would more accurately say evangelical Christianity. Because uh, they will take a watered-down Christianity that says God is love or we're not to judge. In fact, I had that conversation just this week with somebody again. They said, well, pastor, we're not to judge. And I said, really? Where does it say that in the Bible? Well, it's in there. I know it is. (laughs) And I said, well, you know, you're right. It is in there. I said, let me show you. So I said, turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter uh, 7. And as they turned to Matthew chapter 7, I said, why don't you read verse 1? And Matthew 7, 1 says, do not judge. And they stopped right. There it is. Do not judge. I said, you're right. Keep reading. <laughs> do not judge lest you be judged. 
For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And then we kept reading, and it talks about how you're not to go after the splinter in somebody's eye unless you take the log that's out of your own. You see, what God is telling us in Matthew 7, 1 and following is not that we are not to judge sin and evil. What he says is we need to be cognizant of the fact that we, like, remember the Apostle Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. And I, standing up here as a pastor in a pulpit, will tell you, I am the chief of all sinners. And it's because Paul, as well as those of you who are in God's word, are cognizant of the fact that, boy, I blow it daily. I fail in so many ways. You see, as Christians, we're not perfect. Some of us as believers are afraid to confront sin because we know the person is going to turn around and say, well, you're such a hypocrite. You do X, Y, and Z. And we, so we don't want our sin called out, and so we just ignore it. And what God says instead is, quit hiding your sin. Deal with it. He's going to tell us again today to repent. He tells us in his word to confess our sin. What I tell people is, I'm not judging you because I am first in line of one deserving of judgment. However, God has given uh, these prescriptions to deal with our disease called sin. We need to repent. We need to turn from it. We need to confess it. We need to receive his forgiveness. We need to turn to his son and receive him as our savior. We are not perfect people, friends. We are just forgiven. And what God wants us to do is to share that life-changing message with others. And many of us are not doing it. What we're doing is we're tolerating evil. Because not only are we afraid of, of, not being, uh, of being called out as a hypocrite, but many of us are saying, you know, if I confront sin and evil, I'm going to lose a friend. Are you really a friend if you're not willing to tell the person they've got a fatal disease? Proverbs tells us, faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. If we really love somebody, we'll tell them, listen, I'm not coming in judgment. I'm coming because I love you. And you've got a problem, but God has a solution. We talked last time about the sin of Balaam and how he got the people to compromise and join in the idolatry and immorality. And you'll remember the result was that 24,000 in Israel were killed in judgment. You see, what happens sometimes is we look at this and we say, uh, I don't want to confront sin because the person is going to turn their back on me. And I, and, I, and I don't want to lose a friend. But what God says is we are to deal with sin. We are to call it out because God is going to deal with it. He's going to judge it. People say God is a God of love and friends, he is. Remember his agape love? He loved us so much he died for us. But he's also a holy and a just God. And he says, there is a day coming where I will deal with sin. And the judgment that is coming is an eternal one, an eternal separation from me. And so when you say God is a God of love, you need to, to share his love and what he said about the sin. Look at what he says in verses 21 through 22. He says, I'm going to judge the sin that is happening in Thyatira. And I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Repentance, you'll recall, means to change your mind, to recognize you're going in the wrong direction. And it literally means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action where you stop going in one direction and you turn around and you go back to God. 
And some of you may be here this morning where you've been running far from God. And as he calls you to repent this morning, what he says is you slam on the brakes. You recognize I'm headed the wrong way. And then you do a a U-turn and you turn around and you come back to him. For others who may be here this morning, there may be some here this morning who have never come to faith in Christ. And what God, when he calls you to repent this morning, he's calling on you today to turn from your sin and to him to be your savior for the first time. To come to him and receive his great gift of new life, his great gift of grace. Romans 5 eight tells us he demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He will take you as you are, friends. But you have to turn from your sin into him today to receive his gift. God said he was going to judge those in Thyatira for their adultery. When we hear this word adultery, we think of sexual sin in the context of a relationship in a marriage where a husband or a wife cheats on their spouse. And that's, that is an accurate definition. But at its core, adultery means unfaithfulness. It means we cheat on somebody with somebody or something else. And in terms of our walk with God, when we have come to faith in Christ, we say, God, I'm giving you my life. I'm inviting you into the home of my heart. I'm yours. And then when we flirt and play the harlot with the world, when we get involved in the sin of the world and do the things of the world, we're committing adultery. We're unfaithful to God. Jesus Christ is called uh, the bridegroom and the church is the bride of Christ. And when we play with the world like Jezebel did with the, the pagan god Baal, that's what we're doing. We're unfaithful. And he says, I'm going to judge that one day. So in those times that we're doing that, God says, there's a solution. Repentance. Stop, turn around, and come back to me. You'll notice that he calls the believers bondservants. Bondservants was a word that described a person who had attached themselves to a home as a servant for life. There were people in that day who were servants for a period of time, and then the the law prescribed that they would be set free after a number of years of servitude. But a person, when their time of service was up, could say to the master of the home, I want to become a bondservant. I want to attach myself to this home for life. And they did that in a literal way. They would go out to the front door of the house, there'd be the wooden doorpost, and they would take their ear and they would pull the earlobe out and they would lay it against the wood of the house. And then the person would take like a big nail and awl and they would put it on their ear and they would literally nail it through their ear into the door. And so they'd be attached to the doorpost of the home. Now they didn't leave them there, okay? But what they did was they pulled that out. And when they did that, Uh, You think plugs are new in our day. Well, that's essentially what you had. You had a big hole in your ear. And so as they were walking along the street, people would look at them and they would say, I see you're a bondservant. You have this external sign that you have attached yourself to a, a master for life. The baptisms we just saw, there were three individuals who gave you an external sign that they were a disciple of Jesus Christ. They said, I want you to see a physical picture of how I've attached myself uh, to Christ as I've been buried uh, just as Christ was buried for my sins, but then I've been raised in newness of life. When I do a wedding ceremony, I will stand with the bride and groom, and, and there's a part of the ceremony where you say to them, what token do you give as a sign of your uh, affection, as a sign and seal of this holy covenant? And they'll say, this ring. 
And as I take the rings, uh, some want you to bless them, others want you to talk about them, and, and you'll say this ring is made of precious material. It's been refined in a fire. The dross has been burned away, and this is what your love should be like. The, the things that don't belong need to be removed and burned off. You see that the ring is in a circle. It has no ending, and it's to be your commitment for one another. As you're putting on this sign of this covenant, you're saying, till death do us part in, in sickness and in health for better or for worse. Uh, that's the commitment we're making, and it's an external sign of that commitment. Now, I know the tragedy is there, there are those who don't follow through on that lifelong commitment. There are those who uh, end up divorcing, leaving their spouse, being unfaithful. But when it comes to our walk with God, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. God will be faithful with us to the end. He is our, our redeemer. And he calls on us as bond servants, believers who have attached ourselves to him to live in a way that reflects that. As I said, the church is called the bride of Christ and we are to be faithful to our bridegroom, not cheating with the world. He says if we choose to compromise and be unfaithful, there are consequences. He talks about sickness and in death, the things that they were facing because of their wrong choices. He says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, this discipline to try to drive the church back to himself. He says in verse 23, and I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. I asked you earlier, what would God say about your deeds? As God says to you this morning, I know your deeds. Are they faith, love, service, perseverance? Or will he say to you, I know that you refuse to repent and turn to me to be your savior. I want to close with this story of an ancient uh, Saxon chronicle. There was a king that had a rebellion that happened in his kingdom. And as he uh, sent his army out to quell this rebellion, there was a, a duke on one corner of the kingdom that had gathered the people and brought them into his castle. And he rebelled against the king. The king came and he said, listen, you, you have rebelled against me and you have a chance to repent, to, to turn from your disloyalty, swear allegiance to me again, and all will be forgiven. This rebel army refused to do that, and the king was forced to storm the castle, and he, he took the castle, and those who were involved in the rebellion were, were judged and suffered the consequences of it. But then he said to the people surrounding the area who had been loyal to this duke, he said, listen, you have an opportunity to swear allegiance back to me as the king. You can repent of your past rebellion. And he said, however, there's one condition. I'm going to light this candle, which he put in the window of the castle he had retaken. And he said, when the light of this candle burns down, when it becomes a nub and then goes out, the offer of immunity is off the table and then there will be judgment. Friends, we face a similar offer from God today. He says, we've been in rebellion. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. That's rebellion. It means we disobey God. We're doing what we want rather than what he wants. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he says there's a penalty for our rebellion. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. Remember last time we talked about the second death. We talked about what it means in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and following, where those who have rejected Jesus will come before the great white throne judgment and will be rejected by him. 
And he says, the, the penalty for your rebellion is rejection, eternal separation in the second death. But Romans 6.23 says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, the candle is lit. The offer is available. However, there is a day coming where judgment will come. And at that point, no longer will there be an offer of forgiveness, but then there will be eternal judgment. The Bible tells us it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Friends, there are no second chances. When our life is over on this earth, we will stand before the Lord in judgment. Believers for rewards, as we'll talk about next week in the millennial kingdom, the non-believer will face judgment that ends in one place, the lake of fire, eternal separation from God. As you think about your life today, what is God talking to you about at this moment? Do you need to repent this morning? Do you need to, for the first time, recognize that as a sinner, you have no hope except through the hope that God offers his son, Jesus, and turn from your sin into him to be your savior, that step of repentance. If you've never taken that step, just say to God, God, I recognize I'm a sinner. I know I owe a penalty, a penalty of death. And today, Jesus, I accept your great gift of new life. I believe you died in my place and you rose from the dead. I accept you to be my savior. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. For the rest of us who have taken that step before, maybe today you need to repent anew. Not restoring uh, your relationship with God in the sense that you're no longer saved. The Bible's clear. Once you come to faith, you're his for eternity. But some of us have been running far from God and we need to repent and we need to quit being unfaithful with the world and we need to turn back and follow Christ. Why don't you just take a moment to bow your heads in prayer, to ask God what it is that he wants you to do this morning, and then I'll close this in prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Your word that describes for us your great love, your agape love, and that you, Jesus, willingly came and gave your life to die for us. We thank you for that gift of eternal life. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today who has not yet turned from their sin into you to be their savior, this would be the day where they would accept that gift of new life. Father, we thank you as well for your word that describes your eyes that are penetrating. Those penetrating eyes of fire that are pure and cannot stand sin. And we know, Lord, there is a day of judgment coming. And as we think of those uh, feet of yours described as, as so precious, that, that burnished bronze, the strength and purity and preciousness of that, we know as well that your word says there is a day coming where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Lord God, if there's anyone here who's waiting to make that confession, may it be in this lifetime before it's too late. Father, for us today who already know your son, we confess that there are times we walk away from you, that we've been unfaithful. 
Lord, today would you cause us to repent, to turn back to you, to set aside those sins, those things we've been playing with in the world that are not of you. Father, help us not to be those who tolerate evil, much less participate in it. Would we be those who are faithful and stand for you in the places you have us? So we ask now, Lord, that you would turn us back to you, that you would then send us out as your lights, your witnesses to a world who needs to know about your love. Thank you, God, for loving us first. May we live for you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.